Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. We'll read that under the old Jewish system, priests were chosen only from the tribe of Levi, and sacrifices were offered daily on the altar for forgiveness of sins. This system would not have allowed Jesus to be a priest, because he was from the tribe of Judah. But his perfect sacrifice ended all need for further priests and sacrifices. The use of the present tense, there already are priests who offer the gifts, indicates that this book was written before A.D. 70, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, ending the sacrifices. Now the pattern for the tabernacle built by Moses was given by God. It was a pattern of the spiritual reality of Christ's sacrifice, and thus it looked forward to the future reality. There is no tabernacle in heaven of which the earthly one is a copy, but rather the earthly tabernacle was an expression of eternal theological principles. Now, because the temple at Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed, using the worship system there as an example would have had a great impact on this original audience. The bottom line here is if our heart is not changed... Following God's rules will be unpleasant and difficult. We will rebel against being told how to live. The Holy Spirit, however, gives us new desires, helping us want to obey God. With a new heart, we find that serving God is, in fact, our greatest joy. Under God's new covenant, God's law is inside us. It's no longer an external set of rules and principles. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ's words, activates our conscience, influences our motives and desires, and makes us want to obey. Now doing God's will is something we desire with all of our heart and mind. Some of the Jewish believers were clinging to the obsolete old ways instead of embracing Christ's new covenant. All the joy of newfound faith and all the relief of fresh forgiveness had given way to a kind of boredom that was never supposed to be. Growth had stopped. What should be done? If this happens to you, well, realize that life in Christ is never complete. Heaven promises completeness. Until then, growth is the normal pattern. Growth also often endures seasons of drought and drabness. That's also normal. Think about uh, what you're doing that might be spiritually ineffective or obsolete. The key to growth includes daily devotion to Christ through Bible study and prayer. Perhaps you need to grow by engaging in some new areas of service that express your faith. Seek God for how He would have you keep growing in your faith. And with that, let's begin our reading now, here in the New Testament. November 7th, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, He said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means He has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Psalm 106, verses 13 through 31. In the wilderness, the Israelites were so intent on getting the food and water they wanted that they became blind to what God wanted. They were more concerned about immediate physical gratification than lasting spiritual satisfaction. They didn't want what was best for them, and they refused to trust in God's care and provision. You know, if you complain enough, God may give you what you ask for, even if it's not the best for you. If you're not getting what you want, perhaps God knows it's not in your best interest. Trust in His care and provision. The deepest desire in your heart, not the outer layers, but the deepest desire in your heart, is often God's will for your life. So get to the deep places with the Lord. Moses served as the people's intercessor. This refers to the time when the Lord wanted to destroy the people for worshiping the gold calf. Psalm 106, verses 13 through 31. Yet how quickly they, the Israelites, forgot what he had done. They wouldn't wait for his counsel. In the wilderness their desires ran wild testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. So he gave them what they asked for, but he sent a plague along with it. The people in the camp were jealous of Moses and envious of Aaron, the Lord's holy priest. Because of this, the earth opened up. It swallowed Dathan and buried Abiram and the other rebels. Fire fell upon their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt, such wonderful things in the land of Ham, such awesome deeds at the Red Sea. So he declared he would destroy them. But Moses, his chosen one, stepped between the Lord and the people. He begged him to turn from his anger and not destroy them. The people refused to enter the pleasant land, for they wouldn't believe His promise to care for them. Instead, they grumbled in their tents and refused to obey the Lord. Therefore He solemnly swore that He would kill them in the wilderness, that He would scatter their descendants among the nations, exiling them to distant lands. Then our ancestors joined in the worship of Baal at Peor. They even ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They angered the Lord with all these things, so a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas had the courage to intervene, and the plague was stopped. So he has been regarded as a righteous man ever since that time. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 7 through 9. A person who is full refuses honey, but even bitter food tastes sweet to the hungry. A person who strays from home is like a bird that strays from its nest. The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, Come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesechanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio and have a blessed day. The following audio is from the Refuge Church. More information about the Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Oh, man, I think most of you probably know, but we were birthed out of a, a ministry called The Refuge. We started The Refuge Church. And so, first things first, I need to share um, some upcoming changes with all of you. Um, 
I kind of just said it, but I'll start by saying, you know, we started the church um, as the result of a felt need to uh, to provide community for men that were completing the refuge. That was kind of the initial thrust of all this, and 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 the, and the ministry itself started, you know, uh, back in 1999. So this has been going on for a while, and by God's grace, uh, many men have have been impacted through. Um, the authentic biblical culture. I mean, I would say hundreds, if not thousands, of guys have have gone through the ministry, have been changed because of because of Jesus. And in the spring of 2013, I would say a group of um, just probably half a dozen, a dozen folks, uh, we started to pray about what what it would look like to start a church with the same kind of ethos of of gospel um, centeredness and, and and transformation that the refuge ministry um, embodied. And so we, uh, we as a church, we held our first gathering on Sunday, um, June 23rd of 2013. So what is that, like 17 or so months ago? And um, our, our vision, I guess if you would say, is to really glorify our triune God, to glorify um, Him. And, and we want to see this gospel transform everything. We've seen it transform these men. We want to see it transform all of us in every facet of our lives. And so our mission is, is to... Um, is to multiply disciples individually, to multiply groups of people um, as, as a corporate church. We, and we also want to be involved in other church plants. We want to multiply churches. And, and some of the things that, that we value are we want to be a biblically literate church. We want to be a church that really values um, unity and integrity and humility and generosity. And we say we have five, we went over this in the membership class on Friday, but we say that we have five identities as Christians. Well, what is the church? We become worshipers of Jesus and not worshipers of ourselves. Um, as we become Christians, it makes us a family as we commit to one another. We're servants. Um, we respond to what Jesus, I mean, servitude is, is a gospel issue. God has served us, and so we serve other people. Um, we become disciples or learners. What does that mean? It means we follow in the footsteps of Christ. And we never arrive. A learner means that, that you never come to a place where I've got it and I'm good. We're always, we're always growing more and more into who Jesus is. And lastly, we're, we're missionaries. Missionaries aren't just folks that go off to a far land. That is what a missionary is, but that's not the whole story. Missionaries are, it's the mission of God. And as a Christian, I'm now, I'm now called into the mission of God to be, to be a, a to be like Christ in every facet that I'm in. And so these are the components that would fuel our, our decisions. This would be um, the things that fuel the direction we're going to head, and, and hopefully um, what would fuel our destination and where we end up. And so before we make any decisions as a church, as a ministry, we, we begin, um, before we would ever begin to start journeying down a new, a new destination or arrive at a conclusion for certain ministry practices, we make sure that, that those actions would line up with our vision, with our mission, with our values, with our identities. And so by God's grace, this will keep us from ending up in a place that we never intended to be, um, to go down pathway, pathways that would be conflicting um, in what our mission is. <clears throat> and there's always, and, and I, think, I think in ministry and life, there's going to be a hundred things that we could do but there's probably only a few that we should do. And so all these things lead us towards where, where are you calling us? And, and recently it's been apparent that, that we were going to, um, that we were going to move somewhere. Um, we didn't really know where. Um, and, and we've been so grateful to be able to meet here. Um, I see Katie back there this morning. She's been very gracious to us. Um, and allowing us to use her space, and allowing us to meet here, and, and grow here, and learn here. But, um, but we've been wrestling with that. We've been wrestling with, um, if we did leave, where would we go? If we did leave, where would we go? Would we, would we meet somewhere else in Grove City? Um, would we, uh, where, where are we going to end up? You know, and, uh, and my dad and I, we, we didn't go into this meeting thinking anything in particular, but my dad and I, um, you saw him in the video, he started the Refuge Ministries back in 99. But we met with, um, with a pastor, uh, I think it was in July, and um, he's one of the pastors from a big church and with multiple locations, and one of their, one of their locations is in the, in the Hilltop Franklinton 
um, neighborhoods area. And the men of the refuge, they live, they live in those neighborhoods. They live in those neighborhoods. And um, we started to just really just dialogue. And um, that conversation headed towards what, what would it look like for us to just kind of work together? What would it look like for us to, to um, serve together? And so, um, how, you know, how could, we, how could we work together to see the gospel really not only influence these men and these churches, but, but the neighborhoods? And so, what the refuge brings to the table is, you know, boots on the ground, if you will. Um, a lot of guys that are transformed and that are eager and that are excited and that um, I, I like hanging out with them more than, more than the average dude off the street, to be honest with you because they're honest and they're authentic and God's changed them and they know they were sick and they know that, that God's transformed them. And so I, I love, I love that. It challenges me. It, it pushes me forward. And, and they bring their gifts, their backgrounds, their stories. And what the, what the, um, the Lutheran church, the, uh, the church that's already there, what they bring to the table is, is resources, a core group of folks, uh, in a beautiful building. And so, uh, so we've actually, um, We've actually, the Refuge Ministries is moving over there. They're going to start holding their orientations there with their intake for the guys. And we are, we're actually, um, our last Sunday meeting in this location is going to be uh, Sunday, November 30th. So, um, including this Sunday, that's five, that's five weeks. And so I'm about, I'm just going to be honest with you, we're still working out some of these details. This, This is what we've been talking through and wrestling through for a few months now. But I'm about 90% positive that we will start meeting in, the, in, that, in that church, in the Hilltop neighborhood, um, starting Sunday, December 7th. And initially, um, we'll meet, we're trying to pick the best inconvenient time to meet. Um, we're probably going to meet around lunchtime or in the afternoon, since there's already a church there. But that church doesn't have a pastor right now. And so there's the potential of us merging together to be one church um, in the near future, like Lord willing. Um, and so I know, I know this is a lot. <laughs> I know this is a lot. And um, I'm try- I've been praying and thinking uh, the best way um, in, in a timely way to, to explain this and describe um, all of these things to you. I've talked with um, the refuge ministry leaders, their board, um, other pastors, our deacons, um, our leaders, some people I've met with one-on-one. Um, and we discussed it, like I said, two days ago on Friday with our, with our, in our membership class. But I know for, for some of you, for many of you, this is the first time you're hearing this. It's the first time you're he- hearing this, and, and it's probably going to take a minute to process. And I understand that. And so we're going to talk about this a lot in the next coming weeks. But, but I just, I just want to ask you for just three things. For three things. And the first thing is to pray. Um, because anytime there's change as human beings, we're creatures of comfort and we don't like change. And, and I just pray, I just, I encourage you to just begin to pray, pray for the ministry, pray for the church, pray for its leaders, pray for, pray for me. I'll just be honest. Like I I would appreciate your prayer and just pray for us that God would lead us, that God would guide us. Um, secondly, um, I'm going to use the word just engage. And what does that mean? That means be intentional about asking God where he's leading you. Ask God, ask the Lord where he's, where he's leading you. Um, I met with a couple yesterday, and they said the, the perfect thing. They just said, we're just going to pray about this. And so some of you are going to feel called to come, and some of you might not, and that's okay, but engage. Really think through this. Um, process through this. And, and, and what I'll add to that is if you do begin to feel called um, down there, I would just, if you can email um, info at therefugechurch.org, that's going to help us out because we'll put you on a, in a group that will start sending you information about, about next steps and what that looks like and how you can get involved. Um, so we're just trying to organize all that. That'll be the easiest way to do that. So just email um, info at therefugechurch.org and we'll start communicating details as we know them because right now we don't have everything ironed out. We have, we have a handful of things ironed out. And then lastly, um, um, is, is to give, is to continue to give. Because honestly, and, and with all these things moving around and all these changes, um, your continued financial support is obviously greatly appreciated and, and needed. And so um, what we're going to do 
is at the end of at the end of our gathering this morning, we're going to have a um, Doug, the other pastor here, and Noah. Um, you, he comes up at the end of service. He kind of leads all of our deacons. They're going to come up, and we're just going to. If you have questions, um, we're going to do a Q and A, um, and we'll probably do that for the next few weeks. And so we're going to do that at the end. If you want to leave at the end, you can. But if you want to ask questions, um, we'll, we'll be here to field some of those, okay? So what we'll do is let's just pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into Luke, all right? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're, you're gracious to us, that you're good to us, that you, um, you walk with us, you care for us. I just ask, God, that you give us wisdom as we move forward. You give us... Um, direction as we move forward. You'd give us clarity as we move forward. That we would not make um, unwise decisions. That we wouldn't be... Um, that you just keep us from making big mistakes. And that, God, you just lead us. We, we want to do all these things for for the advancement of your kingdom, which means people coming into relationship with you, you becoming king of their lives, not everything else. That's our heart. That's our hope. So I pray that you'd lead us in the direction that that would happen and that we wouldn't be distracted by just simply good things. We want, we want to do the right things. We want to do the things that line up with, with your vision and your mission and, and, and what we're called to as, as a church. And so protect us, lead us. Be with everyone in this room, God. I know that this, for some, um, probably uh, kind of strikes them very surprisingly and maybe even with resistance. And I just pray, God, that as we pray together, as we engage just with our own wrestling about where, where we're called and where we're headed, that, God, you would just give us peace and direction and, and joy, ultimately, with whatever happens. And that this would be a time where we come together, we unify, that we pray for each other, that we would um, ask good questions, and that we'd be encouraging. And so thank you, God, for your grace. Again, amen. All right, so we got two more Sundays um, in in uh, the parable of the two lost sons, and we've been looking. We've been looking. This story is traditionally called, you know, the parable um, of the prodigal son, and we've said that uh, that you'll miss the radical message of the story if you don't see that there's two sons in the story. Um, we tend to focus on the one son, um, but that ends in verse 24, and we and we and we this whole other act ensues and we actually see that there's that there's another one we've got one that's immoral we got one that's bad and we got one that's very very moral very good but but what we've come to know is that both of them are alienated from the father in the story both of them um, in effect are spiritually lost both of them are spiritually lost and so this is, a, this is a remarkable message for us, I think, and it's a remarkable message. It would have been a, um, a remarkable message for the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus was talking to um, at this time. And so, but there's much, there's much more, and I'm excited to, to dive into kind of what, how we're going to look at it this week. But let's go ahead and read um, our text. We're going we're gonna to focus mainly on the first few verses of chapter 15 and then, and then 25 through 32 again. So you can read along um, on the screen. So chapter, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 6, says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them in parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Now let's go ahead and go down to verse 25, which says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what we have to remember is that this is the third of three parables that Jesus, that Jesus tells. And he was telling them to the same exact audience. And really, for us to rightfully understand this third one, we have to ponder them, we have to reflect on them all together. And so what do we learn if we do that? Well, well this morning we're going to kind of cover three big ideas. And the first is, is we're going to look at the cost of reconciliation. The cost of this forgiveness. Secondly, um, that, there's, that there's a missing elder brother. And then thirdly, we're going to reflect on the fact that that we have a true elder brother. We have a true elder brother. So let's look at let's look at this idea of the first one, the cost, the cost. So verse 29, if we read it again, it says this, the elder brother, he answered the father. He said, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. All that's mine is yours. So the question I think we have to ask, one of the questions we have to ask is, what did it cost to bring the younger brother home? What was the cost? See, at first glance, it seems, it seems not to have cost anything. Right? There's no punishment. He's just taken back in. He's just, he's just invited back in. The father opens his arms. He puts new clothes on him. And that's it. It's free. Right? See, many people, I think, um, when they tell this story, they've pointed out, they've pointed this out and, they've, and their argument has sounded something like this. They've said, you know, God in heaven is like this father. And he just, he just accepts and forgives anyone who asks. There's no need for the classic uh, Christian doctrine of atonement. Christians have taught that God can't simply forgive, that there must be uh, payment for sin. But here we see that reconciliation is completely free. However, this is a great mistake. This is a great mistake. See, what we have to understand is that the reconciliation was free to the younger brother, but it was very costly for someone else. It was very costly for someone else. See, the elder brother is furious with the father for receiving his younger brother back into the family. He alludes to that. I mean, it's pretty plain, actually, when he says, you never gave me a young goat, right? We've kind of said, I can just imagine him whining this out. Like, you, you never gave me a young goat, but here, here you, know, I, you know, I was never able to celebrate with my friends, but you kill the fattened calf for him. And so we have to, again, remember, we have to remind ourselves that the father had given the younger son his entire legal part of the inheritance. It was all spent. It was all gone. Yet, now we see the father restoring him into the family. He's already put a robe on him. He's already given him his, his ring, right? Which was probably the signet ring, which, which, fam, you know, which fam, family members would use to ratify contracts. And so the younger brother's fair share of the wealth is all gone. He spent it on what the elder brother says. He spent it all on prostitutes. He, he was out in wild living. He, he gave it all up. It's gone. And so now every robe, every ring, every fattened calf is coming out of somebody else's pocket. Everything the father has now is legally the elder brothers. It's the elder brothers. He's the only heir of what the father has left. 
So every robe, every ring, every fattened calf, every scent of the fathers is ultimately the elder brothers. So when the father says to the elder brother, son, everything I have is yours, he's speaking the literal truth. Because everything that he has will be given to the elder brother. So what we have to understand is that the salvation of the younger brother isn't free after all. It's already been extremely expensive. I mean, if you look at the feast, this was extremely expensive. This wouldn't have been something, this wasn't something that happened regularly. It wasn't even something that happened semi-regularly. This was probably the first time that you would invite the whole community together and you would just feed them the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat. We've already mentioned that. This was very expensive. It was very rare. And so what we know is that the father cannot forgive the younger brother except at the expense of the elder brother. And this is a big, I mean, it's obvious in a lot of the dialogue that we hear about this, but this is a big misunderstanding that many folks have about God when it comes to salvation, when it comes to forgiveness. Many people say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Just let him off the hook. Isn't Christianity about love? Who cares? Why does anyone need to pay? Why do we need the doctrine of the cross? This is really popular in our culture. It's been popular over the centuries. But see, anytime someone wrongs you, it costs something. Anytime a sin is committed, there's a loss. And it's, I think it's easier to imagine when it comes to physical objects. So I believe I heard Keller um, use this. It was, it's, an, it's an odd example, but I believe he used it at one point. But it's the example of this wonderful, glorious lamp. Okay? This wonderful, glorious lamp. But seriously, the, the beauty of the lamp doesn't, doesn't change the story at all. But let's say, let's say you've bought this wonderful lamp that you just love. Okay? And you can interchange that with something else if it makes you feel better. But you have this wonderful lamp. And let's say you have somebody over to your house and they accidentally hit the lamp and it falls over and it breaks. No more lamp. Sad. Right? Well, there's two things that can take place in that situation. One, either your friend repays you for the lamp, or two, you say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But you still have a broken lamp. So by saying, don't worry about it, that's really kind of you. That's nice of you. But that doesn't fix the brokenness of the lamp. It's broken. And so, in effect, our sin creates brokenness. And and either we absorb the results by facing the just wrath of God, or God can absorb our sin by Jesus facing the just wrath of God. You see that? The consequences of sin don't just disappear. The consequences of the broken lamp don't just disappear, right? The lamp just doesn't poof, like it's fixed. Nothing, nothing works like that, ever. Nothing. Nothing has ever worked like that. And so the first thing we need to see is the consequence, or not the consequence, but the cost of reconciliation, the cost of forgiveness. The second thing we need to see is that there's a missing elder brother in this story. So verses, let's read verses 1 through 10 again. Now the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found that he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need, repent, who need no repentance. And then the second parable, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. I tell, just so I tell you, there's, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the elder brother, he knew all this. He knew that forgiveness and reconciliation was never free. He knew that somebody had to pay. And so either the younger brother has to come and he has to earn his way back into the family like he, like he has to absorb the consequences as he offers to do in verse 19. 19, remember he said, and no more, and, I, and I'm, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your servants. Right? Remember, he was going to get ready. He was going to go back. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be accepted in the family. Just let me be one of your servants. The father won't have any of it. He won't, he won't listen to him. So, so he, can either, he can either absorb the consequences or he can come back in immediately through forgiveness. But then the elder brother has to bear the cost. And so this will be on the screen, but this is really one of the big ideas that we constantly have to remind ourselves is that salvation cannot be free. Salvation cannot be free. Someone has to pay either the sinner or his elder brother. The big idea is that we have to understand here that forgiveness isn't free, redemption isn't free, salvation isn't free. Now listen to me. There's, listen to me, elder brothers in this room that you struggle with, with that. Many of you are very good and you're nice and you're religious, but it's still all about you. It's still all about you. You're not, and, and you won't lay your life down for your younger brother. See, the elder brother knows this. He refu- and he refuses to do it. He refuses to do it. So we listen to the story. We see the elder brother being a Pharisee, and we're saddened. We're saddened. The elder brother sees the cost, and he becomes angry. He disrespects his father. He can't believe his father would be so foolish. He refuses to acknowledge the sinner. He won't even consider him as a brother. But, but see, the beautiful thing is, is that this is not where Jesus wants our minds and hearts to remain. See, we have to remember, right, that, that Jesus told the listeners these three parables together. What significance does that have? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. In each of the first two parables, there's a lost object and somebody goes out, somebody searches for it, and they bring it home with joy. Right? The shepherd searches until he finds the lost sheep in parable one. The woman searches until she finds the lost coin in parable two. So when we get to this, to this parable of, the, of this lost younger son in the beginning, the listeners, the Pharisees, they would have fully expected that someone will set out to search for the lost brother and bring him home. So the repetition here, the repetition is leading the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is leading them. He's leading them who are listening to believe that the elder son is going to go out and search for his younger brother. That's what the shepherd does, right? That, that's what the woman does with the coin. But to our surprise, nobody goes. No one does. And so Jesus is leading us to ask this question. Who should have gone out to search for this lost boy? Who should have gone out to search for, for the lost boy? And the answer would have been quite clear to the first, the first century listeners. It would have been quite clear to these scribes and Pharisees. It should, it should have been the elder brother. It should have been the elder brother. See, that, that was the reason that the oldest son, he got the lion's share of the estate. He got the estate of his father. It, it was his job to sustain the family's unity. It, it was his job to, 
to sustain the family's place in the community. It was his job. It's the elder brother in the parable who, who should have said something to the effect of, Father, my younger brother's been a fool. Now his life is in ruins, but I will go look for him and I will bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. And so this is is where Jesus is leading us. And this is what would have been the right response. This is what would have been the gospel-centered response. How so? Jesus doesn't put, or sorry, Jesus doesn't put an elder brother like that into the story. Instead, the younger son and the father have to deal with a resistant, self-righteous elder brother. They get a Pharisee. The younger son and the, and the father, they, they, get, they get a Pharisee. They, they've got one who obeys all the rules and obeys and listens, but who does it all for what he can get out of it. Not because he loves the father. In this story, the father and the sinning son get an elder brother. But we don't. The beautiful thing is, we don't. The elder brother in the story is there to make us long for a true elder brother. One who, if we go astray, won't hold it against us, but will seek us out will bring us back at any risk or at any cost to himself. And so the third big thing we have to realize in this story is that we have a true elder brother. So think, think of the kind of elder brother that we need. We need one who would not just go out to the far country, but one who would come all the way from heaven to earth for us. We need one who wouldn't just open his wallet for us, but pour out his life. One who would, who would pay not just a finite cost, but an infinite debt to bring us back into God's family. And we do. It's Jesus. See, when the father says to the elder brother, everything I have is yours, that's literally true of Jesus. Jesus had all God's glory. Jesus had equal glory with the father but he emptied himself. Philippians 2, 4 through 10 says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He lost it all for us. How do we get the Father's robe? Because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. How do we get the Father's feast? Or we get into the Father's feast? Because Jesus took the cup of wrath that we might have the cup of joy. So he's our true elder brother. And he says so. Hebrews 2.11 says, So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So Jesus came to earth. He fully obeyed his father and he never disobeyed his orders. He he truly had the right to all the father's stuff. But instead, he came out and he searched for us. And he found us in the pigsty and he carried us home singing with joy. And he gave us his robe and he gave us his ring and he gave us his place and he gave us his wealth. And this is all at his expense. This is all at Christ's expense. 
And so friends, this is why we're anticipating on moving to the hilltop. This is exactly why we're going there. Why in the world else would we want to go to a place like the hilltop or Franklinton? Aren't there dirty people there? Aren't there addicted people there? Aren't there angry people there? Aren't there different races there? Heaven help us. Yes, and probably more. Probably more issues, probably more things that we we shouldn't go there. But let me ask you a question. Where would Jesus be? Where would Jesus plant a church? Who would Jesus refuse to care for? Who would Jesus refuse to love? What, what breaks my heart, and, and, and you know what? Jesus is good, even the church, we, we, we're sinners and we're messed up. But it breaks my heart that why is it that Sunday morning is the most, one of the most segregated times of the week? Why is it that churches oftentimes grow in suburban neighborhoods, but nobody wants to permanently invest in the city centers and the urban neighborhoods? Where would Jesus be? I think he'd be with folks that knew they were sick. I think he'd be with folks that knew they were in need. I think, I think he'd be with folks that knew that they were desperate. And so simply put, I think we have an opportunity to be a part of something that's probably a little radical for our culture. I think we have, we have an opportunity to be a part of something beautiful. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't want to romanticize it. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward at times. But I believe it's going to be good. And so, friends, I'd be lying to you if I, if I didn't say, I encourage you to embrace to embrace the wild journey, to see the men's lives changed in the refuge ministry, but also by God's grace, slowly but surely, my prayer is that we see the neighborhoods of Franklinton and Hilltop transform into God's likeness over the years to come. So let's pray. Lord, you're calling us to something that is not comfortable. And to be honest, I'd rather do something else. The problem is, God, I don't, when, I, when I read the New Testament, I don't see any of the apostles or disciples being called to anything comfortable. Because I think ultimately, I don't think you're against us. I don't think you want us to hurt and suffer. But I don't think what you're calling us to is comfort. And so many of us just need to get up off, we need to get up off our butts. We need to move. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to be stretched. We need to get into a place where we're desperate for you. Because I'm sick and tired of hearing the words. And people, you know, we want a new word. We want to be encouraged. We want to feel good. We want to be excited. But we don't want to do the work of ministry. We don't want to love the unlovable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be challenged. We want to feel good and go home. We want a nice family and a nice house and a nice paycheck and a nice neighborhood with nice people that smile a lot. We want nice coffee. We want nice food. And none of that is wrong, but that's not necessarily what you're calling us to. And God, I know we're not all called to difficult places, but I pray I pray to God that we would be obedient to where we are called. And that our posture would be, God, where you lead me, I will go.
If it's a rich suburb, I will go. If it is the most violent and, and, and just terrible neighborhood there is, I will go. That should be our posture as Christians. That's what you did for us. At great expense to yourself. So Jesus, my prayer for us is that for the first time, some of us would just put our faith in you. We're broken, we're beat up, we're weary. And you know what? Praise God. In our brokenness, in our, in our woundedness, in our weariness, we're reminded that we're not God. That there's something beyond us that we need. And it's you. And so some of us need to just confess that we're We've been trying to find joy in the wrong places and we're, and we're tired. And some of us need to repent because we've been pursuing comfort more than we've been pursuing picking up our cross daily and following you. Some of us just need to rejoice because you know what? We're following you and we're having a pretty decent week and praise God for that. But I just pray that as we go to the table in a minute, as we, as, that we would not take communion lightly because your body was broken and your blood was shed. And how dare us go to that table if we don't mean it. It's not just a symbol. It's our salvation. That if we put our faith in you, because of the expense that you gave us, we, we can find relationship with God. change us, humble us. Praise you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.